Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good evening, Rich. Good evening. And welcome all to a chapter of my life with author Richard Crooks. Richard, we want to talk about your fantastic book that I am currently reading, Grandad, What Was Football Like in the 70s? But first, let's have a let's have a, a talk about your back catalogue and you as a person. How did you become a journalist and an author? Um, really an author. Um, and that was simply because I went to a game with my eldest grandson, Charlie. And that was about uh, five, six years ago. And that was at Reading. Uh, happened to be against uh, my team, Sheffield Wednesday. And it made me really think about the experience of going to football for him as an eight-year-old in 2015, compared to when I first went to football back in 1964 as an eight-year-old. And it was chalk and cheese. And I thought, hang on, this is not only interesting for me, for him, it was that's how it is and how it's going to be going forward. But it just made me want to put down on paper what it was that really was for me the experiences I'd had going to football, how I travelled to football, getting in, what was the cost, uh, and all the things that went with it. Yes, to a degree, some of the games as well, of course, television, which was all but non-existent in the 60s. So it was all all the new experiences for him made me think about what it was like um, 50-odd years ago. And that age of between seven and ten... I think of the three most magical years as a football supporter, isn't it? It's when you first walk into your football ground, you smell the grass, you look at the colours, you see the crowd, you almost fall in love with football there and then. You're making me smile just thinking about it. You're absolutely right. Um, and that, as you say, just going through the turns, like waiting for my dad on the other side because the boys' queue is a lot longer we're in and now we go climb up the steps at, for me climb up the steps to Hillsborough and the spine cop there and it was it was just a, a magical experience and the floodlights as well they were just wow I've never seen anything like this before. now previous titles you have done previous books haven't you uh yes the the first one was granddad what was football like in the 1960s um and, and that followed the theme as i've been describing of how things were when I first went to football, having written that book, I then thought, hang on, the 1970s looks an interesting one as well. Just taking that theme further on, what was it like in the 70s? What had developed further? Um, after after the 70s book, I, I did one on the Sheffield Derby. Wednesday, it's uh, the game which for me means the most. I'm sure for yourself, it will be the Birmingham Derby, the Birmingham Villa game. But for me, it's a Sheffield Derby. And the most recent book I've written what was football like in the 1980s. I, I just enjoy writing um, and researching. And, and the, the way that I write is to supplement um, what I've researched, what I've put down with personal experiences. Because I think for me, it brings some flavour out into the book and, and, and the experiences as well. And try to have in the book, as best I can, a conversational style. What, what I don't like in terms of any written, well, in reading is an academic type of look at things, just to really try and make it more human it really comes across in that way it almost comes across as um as a 70s bible where it's like the old testament and the new testament the old <laughs> testament is you and your love for sheffield wednesday and then the new testament is the 70s and then you get into exactly what the 70s was like i think it's a fantastically written book the attention to detail is absolutely magnificent the cover the front cover is that iconic 
picture when uh, Santos played Sheffield Wednesday in 1972. And I have to say, and I've said this to TC on many occasions, that spine cop with no roof on it looks as though it touches the clouds. <laughs> You're very kind in your comments about my writing. Thank you very, very much. Um, that spine cop it, it is it's fabulous as a to be on it as a picture and everything else. But when it rained, yeah. that was the last place you wanted to be. You got absolutely soaked to the skin. Clearly, there's no roof or anything else. But but as a, a picture, dramatic. It's been described as that that alp of humanity because it goes. You did go up in top corner and it did look like an alp. And I think it's a fabulous description. The alp of humanity when it's got a packed crowd on it. And it is like it's just it's it's one of the most magnificent sights in football. It just really is truly incredible. And I'm mm. looking at that that front picture. And I love the television as well. It's an old TV, your cup of coffee, your glasses. And what was that book on there? It looks like Brazil versus England from the nineteen seventy World Cup. I think it is. I it was a designer who put all that together, but I think you've well. absolutely described it. Yeah, absolutely. And on the back is Sir Ralph, a red card, the, yeah. the globe, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and England, um, sorry, Wembley, Leeds United versus Sunderland. Was the person that designed the back a Sunderland fan? How come I, that program <laughs> got on the back? Uh, I, I don't think he's a Sunderland fan. I, I, I think he quite probably was a Coventry City supporter. Okay. Um, but but why the program on the back? Because I think the of the seventies Cup finals, that's the one that really stands out as being the uh, the upset of all upsets uh, when Second Division Sunderland beat the favourites Leeds United at Wembley with Bob Stoker famously running across the pitch at the end, Jim Montgomery making that fabulous save from Lorimer uh, with David Coleman commentating, thinking that's the goal. And then he had to stop himself and play, come back on it. And so fabulous save Jim Montgomery. And Porterfield's goal, of course, um, just sealed it for the Wearsiders. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think even to this day, if you're watching that as it happens, that is a goal. How Jim Montgomery saved that ball is quite incredible and has to be one of the greatest saves ever in the history of football. And I think you're right, the 73 FA Cup final arguably was the biggest giant killing cup final of the uh, of the 70s. We had some great cup finals, of course, in the 1970s, League Cup and FA Cup. And while we were just briefly talking about that game, when Santos played Sheffield Wednesday, did any kid actually go to school that day in Sheffield? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a lot of us got told off, and then, and worse than told off the following day. Yeah, we'd actually, we, for, for my part, we'd got a games day that afternoon, which was uh, good news because you could bunk off games relatively straightforward. But other lads who did, uh, they got into real trouble. Anyway, so there were quite a lot of lads who didn't go to school. You're quite right. Was it worth it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No question. Just to say I've seen Pelly play um, was just something else. I mean, Wednesday were totally outclassed. They lost 2-0 on the day, um, but Pelly was something else. Actually, the Wednesday players hung off him and didn't go in. I don't think they certainly didn't go in fouling or anything like that. But the experience was unbelievable. The other thing that was really interesting, because I stood on the cot that day as well, you'd got people coming up from, I remember people from Stoke, um, from Plymouth some, and all around the country come up just to have say I've been and seen Santos and I've seen Pele play because Santos did do a few games like that didn't they I remember they come up to Birmingham and they played Aston Villa at Villa Park and they they certainly played I think it was in 1971 they played Chelsea uh, in Jamaica John Barnes actually was the ball boy that day wow um, <laughs> I knew they played at Villa Park, so I think it was the same same year they played Wednesday. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, but I, I wasn't aware of the, the other, so wow. And John Barnes being a ball boy, fabulous. Yeah, Alan Hudson found that out when he was doing a, a gentleman's evening and John Barnes came up and told him it was, it was quite incredible. Now, the 70s wasn't the greatest decade for Sheffield Wednesday. Um, you really hit your lowest lows, didn't you? 
How yep. did you feel as, you know, growing up and for the first time ever, a great team like Sheffield Wednesday? And, and, and I've had conversations with people, whether, it, you know, in one or two interactions on social media. For me, Sheffield Wednesday, the biggest club in Yorkshire. You know, OK, Leeds United have, <laughs> with Don Revy had a wonderful time. But when you look at the history of football, Sheffield Wednesday, for me, are the biggest. Thank you. Uh, that history is great and it, is. Um, it, it stands up but then when you, you're actually there in the 70s and in Sheffield you've got the other club United mm. actually for them the early 70s were moving into their peak years so they it really rubbed it in for us that um, we were going downhill and going downhill rapidly and they were in the limelight Wednesday weren't the decline was setting in and I think you're being kind in how you're describing Wednesday because Wednesday were poor and it was undoubtedly uh, Wednesday's lowest ebb. In fact, just to plug another book that uh, an author's writ- written, John Dyson, there is a book called Our Lowest Ebb, Wednesday, and it, it re- relates to the 1970s. And it, it's a fascinating read, and it just shows how much a famous, um, big so-called club can fall and the impact it has on people. Uh, because people, are, as you well know, and people will know, very emotionally attached to their football club. And, and it has a a real impact on people. Absolutely. Um, almost went into Division 4 as well, didn't they? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. quite incredible. Shudder. Yeah. Yeah, shudder down the spine, that. It, it was it was a last game decider. It would be Wednesday or Southend United that got relegated into Division 4. I actually wasn't. I was uh, away at university at the time and I couldn't get back, but I was on the phone to my dad who'd got the phone next to BBC Radio Sheffield commentating, so it cost me like quite a lot of 10p coins that. But in the end, it was uh, 2-1 to Wednesday, but that was a hell of a relief. And there is a connection to you and Southend, but we're not going to talk about that because we want people to read the book. There is also a toss of a coin to the university that you decided to go, and again, <laughs> that was for footballing reasons, but we're not going to tell anybody about that because we want them to read the book. And it really, there's a lot of humour in the book. You also, although you're a big Sheffield Wednesday supporter, you went and worked at Bramall Lane on the turnstiles, didn't you? So you are seen football in Sheffield from another angle as well. And that was an experience and a half. Okay. You're absolutely right. Um, we This was 73-4 uh, season. Wednesday weren't doing particularly well. I was a young teenage lad and wanted some money. And one of my mates had found out they were looking for turnstile operators at Bramall Lane. And um, it would mean we couldn't go to the Wednesday away games, or many of them anyway. So we went down. We taken on, on as turnstile operators. And the experiences were, in inverted commas, something else. I can remember three, three particular games there um, that stand out. One was against Manchester United. Remember, these really weren't they weren't all ticket games. Yeah. Um, and we were turnstile operating the various terraces. Um, the Manchester United game. There were a lot of people who tried to climb over the um, the turnstile without paying and, and coming into. And I called a policeman over and said, "Look, we're getting everybody jumping over here." So. Could you just stand and, and, and be a deterrent? And he did. Mm-hmm. Um, the Leeds United game, last game of the season, and Leeds were going to be crowned as champions. They all but were champions. And we were on the terrace for the Shoreham Street Cop turnstile. And I was the last style that was closed. And um, it was forcibly closed. It was too many people in the ground. But the yeah. other interesting thing behind that is they had no way of knowing how many people were in the ground other than just looking at it, and it was by sight only. And um, 650 people, I remember them saying to me, 650 people have come through your turnstile in two hours, which is some going, actually. They used to take an awful lot away from home. They still do. Have you got a favourite year from the decade? I'm kind of guessing 79 weren't too bad. Of this, you know, <laughs> the Boxing Day massacre. <laughs> we, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Any Wednesday, I would say the Boxing Day massacre. No question, 79, yeah. 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 What was that game like? I mean, I've heard it firsthand from Terry Curran. There was no way that Wednesday were, were going to lose. United were top of the pops going into the game and, and it was kicked off at 11 o'clock, wasn't it, in the morning on the say-so of uh, South Yorkshire Police? 
Absolutely. And um, you've described the, the context of it very well. United were top of the division. Wednesday was something like eighth on the on the day of the game. It was the first time Wednesday played United in the Sheffield Derby for 10 years. Uh, United had been ruling the roost in the city. Wednesdayites, I think, generally were had a degree of foreboding about it because they were top of the division. We were coming into it the first time. Um, I've read more about it since, but um, clearly before the game, and Terry Curran clearly is the best person to talk with, yeah. Wednesday were really hyped up before it. Um, absolutely packed cop, Boxing Day, early morning kickoff, a little bit of rain coming down, um, and then Spider, sorry, Ian Meller, um, yeah. scored Wednesday's goal, I think after about 28, 29 minutes. It was a hell of a goal into the cop, cop end. And the, the relief that went up from the crowd was just immense celebration yes we'd scored and yes the baiting with the the red and whites from our point of view but it was just utter relief and i think at that point any wednesday i would have said we'll take it we've won one nil let's go um but clearly there's half time approached they hit the post at the other end and everyone was just on edge and then come the second half it was just fabulous fantastic the um, I struggled to really describe what the feeling was other than one of utter joy. From a Wednesday night point of view, it was absolutely joyful that, uh, that boxing day. They went 2-0, 3-0. Terry Curran scored a goal in there. Mark Smith finished it off with a penalty. All, all three of those goals in front of the United supporters at the Leppings Lane end. So that just rubbed it in for them. Um, they would enjoy very similarly when they've beaten us, uh, how we feel when that happens. But it was just a fantastic day. Now, every player that scored a goal that day celebrated it. However, Terry Curran <laughs> celebrated it in a way that only Terry Curran would celebrate it. And TC says to me, Gavin, if I, if I got a bag, I'd have earned a fortune with the coins that the Unitedites threw at me. And he also done a bit of sunbathing as well that day, TC did. <laughs> no, yeah, it was at the other end, but there are pictures of it and I've read it and I've seen it. He, he just celebrates wild, not wildly, he was just waving at the Unitedites, which is not a good idea when scored against them and they're 3-0 they're down. But um, yes, fabulous day. And while we're talking about TC and we're talking about United as well, we've got to mention the other TC in Sheffield, uh, Tony Curry. You had two two kings of Sheffield, really, the way I see it in the 70s, Terry Curran and Tony Curry, both showmen, both mavericks, both players of the highest ability and both should have gone on the international stage and got 50 caps plus. Absolutely no question. And um, whilst from a Wednesday night point of view, you'd say, hang on, at the time that Tony Curry was playing, we had a TC, Tommy Craig. Yes. And we did, and Craig was a good player. Actually, Curry was a world beater. Yeah. He was a fabulous player. The skill he'd got, the, the arrogance he'd got, and the showmanship he'd got, but he knew how to play. He had other players in his pocket. He was, he was fabulous to watch. And, you know, on those occasions at the turnstile operator, we saw the game later on. You could just see, see the quality of the player. And I agree with you. It's criminal that he and Terry Curran didn't get, get more international recognition. And both of those boys, I have to say, are great fellas as well. Oh, um, T, T, both TCs and Terry, uh, Tony Curry when he scored a goal, he used to love to blow kisses to the crowd as well, didn't he? he yes. That, yes. But, but those players, you dedicated a chapter in your book to the showman and the maverick. So let's just briefly talk about some of those standout players of the 70s. Because I know that we look at football now and the kids look at football and think, well, football's, it's faster, it's furious, it's a, it's a great game, is it, it's exciting. For me, the greatest decade of football was the 70s. We had everything in that decade. Oh, absolutely. And, and as you say, the characters that, that come through from that, the, the, the Currys, the Currens, uh, the Stan Bowles, the Rodney Marsh, Frank Worthington, the Alan Hudson, uh, brilliant. And um, 
they they would put um, thousands on a gate just by playing. I mean, yeah. of course, we shouldn't forget George Best because yep. George Best, at certainly at the beginning of that decade, uh, was certainly box office to say the least, and um, he was a really first-rate, excellent player. There's some nice nice stories too. Um, I'm reminding myself about um, Rodney Marsh and. Um, Evidently, when he went and was called up for a game against West Germany for England in, I think it was April 72, and um, they're having a discussion before the game, and Alf Ramsey wanted to know, now, who's going to take penalties for us tonight if we get one? And Bobby Moore, Emily Hughes, and the rest weren't interested, didn't want to take a penalty. Rodney said, I'll take it, Alf. Right, that's settled then. Rodney's taking the penalties. And Rodney said, there's only one problem, Al. You haven't picked me for the team. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which uh, and there we are. <laughs> but but re- really great players. And, and just to extend that for a moment, I've mentioned George Best. Um, I saw George Best a few times. I actually saw him at Bramall Lane in April 72. And he didn't have a particularly good game, but the crowd were really after him. Yeah. Um, at the time back then, um, there was a Dick Emery character and um, the crowd was singing as one, Georgie Best, superstar, carries his handbag and wears a bra. And this thing was getting louder and louder and louder. And he took himself, had an arm um, by his hip and just waddled along the penalty area as if just taking the mick out of it. Yeah. It just brought the house down. It was fantastic, and I saw had the good fortune to meet both George Best and Rodney Marsh many years later. And I said to George about this particular incident, and he said, "Yeah, of course I remember it. What would have been the reaction if I'd have just put two fingers up? The crowd would have gone mental, yeah. and it just got got the crowd absolutely the right thing to do at the right time. It was brilliant." And of course, Supermac on his debut for uh, for Newcastle against Liverpool in 1971. Supermac, superstar. How many goals have you scored so far? And and <laughs> the, there was a lot of songs like that that went round. There was also yeah. "Where's Your Wife Gone?" "Where's Your Wife Gone?" Stanley Bowles and Stan was just orchestrating <laughs> the away supporters. I mean, the away supporters give it the Mavericks big style but they did because they as an away fan you love those players as well and you're right they put they put they put thousands on attendances up and down the land the only people that appeared not to like them was the England football team managers and famously in the 70s when Reevee was manager you got Charlie George Rodney Marsh Alan Hudson Stan Bowles Tony Curry Frank Worthington you got the boys together at a training session and says you're not in my plans ta-ra I I would have sacked Reevee that day there and then no question and what a waste absolute criminal waste just going to do tangent for a moment, because you reminded me about the crowd. April 72, Hillsborough, Wednesday against Birmingham City. Um, and it was Birmingham or Millwall to go up into the first division. Yeah. And aside from a Sheffield derby at Hillsborough in an FA Cup semi-final, I have never heard a louder away contingent than the Blue Noses that yeah. day. They got to 2-1 with minutes to spare from the end of the game and the keep right on to the end of the road chant was just phenomenal and it was everyone was up on their seats and the Wednesdayites cheered the Blue Noses that day there was just fantastic atmosphere within the ground now it's my turn for all the years on the back of my neck to stand up there you know it, it, it just is something that it's in your blood isn't it with football absolutely yes no question you either get it or you don't get it. Who were your favourite player or players during that uh, that time? And briefly, I want to talk about one of Sheffield Wednesday's finest and great, well, greatest goal scorers, Derek Dooley, because he was on both sides of the divide, wasn't he? Yeah, yes, he was. Um, Dooley um, made his name, uh, playing career, sadly very sadly brought to an end, a game at Preston North End, 
um, where his challenge on the goalkeeper resulted in, in him and not only breaking his leg, he was taken to hospital in Preston and um, they found that he was infected with gangrene. And in those days, they had no option but to save his life by uh, taking his leg off and amputating it. But that, that, um, that tragic end to his career, but he was phenomenal as a player. And my dad, I remember, keeps telling me about the goalkeepers used to run away when Dooley yeah. came because he, it was him or the ball, either goalie or the ball. Dooley wasn't interested. Boof, go. And he scored four goals in one season for Wednesday. And he, then he became manager uh, early 70s for Wednesday, having been in the pools office, the development fund and everything else, the manager did his dream job. Um, and Wednesday were in decline anyway. And I think he did a, made a good fist at the job, but um, the most appalling, absolutely heart-wrenching decision was made to sack Dooley on Christmas Eve. And that just, it just was wrong, utterly wrong from every direction. Um, but the director said, well, it's in the best interest of Sheffield Wednesday. It wasn't. Uh, it was in their best interest. But even they, I think, on reflection would say, wrong decision. It crushed Dooley, and understandably so. Um, he vowed never, ever to go back to Hillsborough um, as a result of what happened to him. He joined Sheffield United um, some years later on the commercial side and became commercial director. Became commercial director. He developed to managing director and was on the board and was very, very successful for Sheffield United. And he is the only, the only person, in my view, who will not have a word said against him by either Wednesday supporters or United supporters. He actually came back to Hillsborough for Sheffield Derby, his first first game back in 92-3. It was a night game. And the, the whole crowd rose as one to him. And I, I don't mind admitting, I was tearful. Mm -hmm. And many others were as well when Dooley just came out onto the pitch. It meant that much. It was so emotional. An absolute legend of Sheffield, a legend of the game. There's also uh, Sheep on the Moors mentioned <laughs> in the book, but again, we want people to read the book. It's a funny story yeah. about Sheep yeah. on the Moors. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and you read and you think, no, that, that didn't happen. Did it? it couldn't happen, but it did. <laughs> Hillsborough, synonymous with FA Cup semi-finals as well. You had a few of those, didn't you, in the 70s? Yeah, yes, and... and um... I had good fortune to be able to go to, to five of them in yes. a row, actually, yeah. at the beginning of the 70s. And then another interesting thing there, it was easy to get tickets, say for the first one, but I got a ticket for the Man United Leeds game. It was easy to get tickets from the home club. Never happened now, but you, you did. And you went there and um, the atmosphere was fantastic. Um, again, you've got the passion and the FA Cup really meant something in the 1970s. It was you know, the game before the final. The one that stands out the most for me was the Arsenal against Sunderland game in 1973. Yeah. Everyone fancied Arsenal. Arsenal had won the double a couple of seasons earlier, the first division side. Sunderland was, was second division and had done very well to get there. We were on the cop with the Sunderland supporters. Uh, Sunderland did it and Sunderland deserved it. But what really stands out from that game is the emotion passion the emotion of the Sunderland supporters and they were just they were crying everyone was crying snooker we could see in the distance but all around us they couldn't believe it the emotion was just unbelievable um it's what the, the what you said earlier what football means to people and and it really comes across and it meant a great deal to them I think there was a few Arsenal fans crying as well alongside the Sunderland supporters that day. I'm, I'm looking down at the, champ, the champions of the 70s. Arsenal, Derby, Liverpool, Leeds, Derby, Liverpool, Liverpool, Forest, Liverpool, Liverpool. Liverpool definitely were the team of the 70s. However, between 1965 and 1975, it was Leeds United and Don Reeves Leeds United. They were the team to beat and famously went 29 
nine games unbeaten 73-74 season well until they they turned up at the Victoria ground at Stoke yeah, took yeah, a 2-0 yeah, yeah. lead had a goal from Joe Jordan disallowed then Udi and the boys went to work on them and ran out 3-2 winners and again another iconic game of the 70s well I'm more than impressed with that level of uh, Dennis Smith I think yeah did uh, score the winner absolutely keep, keep, yeah absolutely but, but yeah, you're absolutely right about the Leeds United. I mean, I'd grown up with Leeds United through the 60s being the opposition and they were a dirty side and they went out of their way to, in my view, live up to the reputation in the uh, mid-late 60s. But having said all of that, they're actually a good football side as well yeah. when they allowed that, that to come uh, come through. Paul Fletcher, the Burnley centre-forward, told me Don Revy assembled a team of assassins but you'd want any of them in your team. Oh, <laughs> I, th- yeah. I think you're absolutely right. We had some great cups as well. Not only did we have the League Cup and the FA Cup, but we had the Watney Cup, we had the Texaco Cup, and we had the Anglo-Italian, where our teams <laughs> used to go out and cause mayhem in, in various <laughs> Italian cities. In fact, when Stoke City went there in the 70s, Wellington had an audience with the Pope, because the Pope weren't very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Those those cups, the Watney Cup, the Texaco Cup, the first sponsored commercial cups came in in the 70s. I'm yeah. not I'm not sure they were that big, but um, certainly made an impact. And I uh, wasn't aware of the Stoke and the, the Pope. Uh, it sounds great. Yeah, it was. Um, some again, wonderful games, wonderful moments, iconic moments, iconic games. None more than the donkey kick that was banned at the end of the season. Oh. Willie yeah. Carr and yeah. Ernie Hunt. Yeah. Again, things like that 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 were started in the seventies. You know, football started a long, long time ago in the eighteen hundreds. But it just seemed as though the seventies was that that decayed where it all come to fruition. Commercialisation coming, the programmes, the Football League review inside the programmes. Yeah. Football yeah. really was redefining itself in that decade, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, a whole heap of stuff got started to come together and, and just going to the first, the first point you made just then, the, the Willie Carr, the Ernie Hunt, Coventry City against Everton, uh, the donkey kick. Um, it was real innovation. It was yeah. imagination, innovation, and it was, wow, that's really made it stand up. And then the innovation is suddenly kiboshed, and the authorities say, well, not having that. And crazy, absolutely crazy. And when they stopped the donkey kick in 1977, Willie and Ibby done another kick, another free kick that almost changed the, well, it did change the fortunes of Nottingham Forest because it promoted Nottingham Forest while they were in the air going to Torremolinos. And uh, Willie Carr put a ball over for Kenny Hibbett, who run onto it, volleyed it, Back of the net, 1-0 to Wolves, last game of the season. Forrest got promoted, Bolton never. And then Forrest went on and won the uh, the European Cup the season after. The 70s was great for domination of English clubs in Europe as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it was undoubtedly. And, and, and just before Europe, I think, I think the other thing you brought out there and, and wasn't aware of the kick, the, the nature of the kick from Carr and Hibbert, but fabulous from what you described there. The other thing that was also clear, we've got clubs like Derby County, Nottingham Forest, who could make it and be league champions in the 70s. Yeah. And they were not big clubs then, um, but they could. Yes, Liverpool dominated, and as you say, Leeds earlier on, but um, um, for those clubs to, to be league champions, clearly they were the best team in that season, in that league in England. Uh, something that Actually, you don't see nowadays. And, and again, it's just underlining the point that the 70s enabled that to happen. Um, there was a meritocracy about the football and about the ability. If you've got the team together, you've got the manager, you've got the players come together, you could be top of the league and, and win the league. And yes, sorry, moving on to your, your observation about Europe. Yes, no question. Uh, the English clubs started to make an impact in Europe. Um, Liverpool... Um, uh, won their first uh, European Cup in the 70s, 1977. 
and um, one in 78. So, so they started to make a clear impression on Europe. Leeds United had lost against Bayern Munich in in Paris in 75, but I think a lot of controversy about that game and oh, yeah. goal, goals being disallowed for offs and various other things. That Leeds were very unlucky. But then Nottingham Forest at the end of the decade and they got their European Cups as well. So, so yes, a domination, not just in the European Cup, but in the UEFA Cup as well and the European Cup winners' uh, Cup, Cup too. There wasn't many years in the 70s that an English or a Scottish team didn't win a European Cup, did they? That's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Indeed, you're right. And in 1971-72 season, that was the closest. Derby won it on 58 points. Leeds come second when they got beat at Wolverhampton Wanderers, their last game of the season, on 57 points. Liverpool had 57 points and Manchester City also had 57 points. It was nip and tuck. We also had Ipswich Town that were a great team of the 70s. Stoke City were a great team of the 70s. As were Sheffield United for a short time because I think that one season before they got relegated, they were, I believe, five or six points off the title uh, themselves. They were, they're, in fairness, United were a fabulous side in, yeah. the, in the early 1970s, no question. Mm-hmm. And they're an exciting side. They weren't the only one. You described some there. They're an exciting side. That you, it really got you the adrenaline pumping round, just, just to be there and, and watch these sides. United, as you say, uh, Stoke City, uh, Derby County. They're exciting to watch. We also had alleged briberies. We had legal payments. <laughs> we had yeah, Goodison we Park was the first triple-decker main stand erected. The East Stand went up at uh, at Stamford Bridge, Stamford. Uh, yeah. partially paid for the uh, sale of Peter Osgood and Alan Hudson. <laughs> but they went into incredible debt, which almost yeah. bankrupt Chelsea. Sheffield United, when they built their stand, all, well, that really was the start of the demise of, yes. uh, of Sheffield United. And, of course, at Old Trafford, the first private boxes, that yeah. was another yeah. thing that happened in the 70s as well. Yeah, the whole range, you're absolutely right, the whole range of stuff there. And it's interesting, the, the clubs that were crippled by debt by doing these, yeah. uh, doing these changes, and, and they didn't recover both clubs uh, for some time because Chelsea got relegated uh, towards the end of the 70s. Um, interesting times and, and I, again I was just reminding myself of the grounds, the 92 grounds in use uh, begin on January 1970 um, 31 of those grounds are no more, now, that's over a long period of time that, that they've changed and moved on but that underlines the, the, the need for football clubs to improve their stadium, improve their grounds and they've done that because, frankly, one of the things that was not good about the 70s as a generality was the facilities for the spectators. Yeah. Um, at the time, it didn't bother me one iota. I just enjoyed going. It, it was what I was used to and everything that went with it. It was a fabulous atmosphere. But actually, if you're trying to attract new people to a ground, um, it wasn't so good. And obviously, that time as well, the hooliganism uh, came to the fore, which would put some people off, off going to games for sure. And fences were erected, in fact, at Chelsea. I think Ken Bates put an electric one up there, didn't he, at Stamford Bridge? He, he did. I think I think that's just moving into the 80s. But yeah, you're it was. Yeah. Right. yeah, you're absolutely right. He did put an electric fence. Unfortunately, it was never um, operational, but the, the, the intent was there. Absolutely. Match of the day was, uh, was, was on our TV at about 10 o'clock, I, as a young one, had to go to bed um, after Dick Emery, wait for my sister to go to sleep, then creep down the stairs to watch my heroes play. We had some iconic programmes as well in the 70s, didn't we? Saturday night was was just a treat, wasn't it, for, for, yeah. for kids, for your mum and dad, and there was yeah. variety shows, yeah. entertainment. Yeah, the whole thing. And it was real family occasion, topped off with Match of the Day, which was the, um, must, must view stuff on a, on a Saturday night. 
Absolutely, and Starsky and Hutch and Kojak as well, we oh, have to mention, because yeah. there's some yeah, great yeah, iconic... Yeah. <laughs> and Colombo as well, Colombo yeah. was in the shake-up. How did we not win the World Cup in the 70s? We had a tremendous World Cup up until we played uh, West Germany in Lyon. And uh, Bobby Charlton come off, Franz Beckenbauer had the run of the show, and they come back from 2-0 down to knock England out uh, 3-2. In 1974, arguably we had the greatest group of players. Sadly, the Poles knocked us out when Cluffy described uh, Jan Tomaszewski as a clown, but that night the clown and the circus that come to town really... Uh, well, it, it piddled on our parade, to be quite truthful, well, didn't it? Certainly piddled on our parade as well. Yeah, mm. no question of that. And uh, stop going to uh, uh, to West Germany for the finals in, in '74. Scotland, of course, went in '74. And Scotland again went into uh, the Argentina World Cup finals in '78. Again in '78, England didn't qualify. And when you look at the the amount of fantastic football players that we had in the 70s. It's quite remarkable, really, how we didn't win the World Cup because if we were ever going to win a World Cup, the 70s was the, the decade that we were going to do it. I'm, I'm, I think you're right. In fact, I'm sure you're right. And I, I think part of it comes back to what we've talked about, really. The, the players who could turn the game individually, who, who, if you let them get on with it and do it, the managed England management weren't interested, Revy being at the forefront of that. And it's too no good looking back, but looking back, that I'm sure is at the core of why we didn't do much better than we should have done. And I agree with you. Um, the opportunity was undoubtedly there for England to win the World Cup. Absolutely. And we also had shirt sponsorships. The first oh, yeah. one was Kettering Tyres, wasn't it, with Derek Durgan? Yes, <laughs> yes you're absolutely right. And then we... Uh, I think it was in 76, the 76 Cup final, Southampton and uh, Manchester United. Yep. When Admiral um, was sponsoring um, actually the tracksuit tops uh, for Southampton, and the BBC had a problem with them coming out and Admiral being emblazoned on the front of their tracksuit tops. So there was some hasty discussions, evidently, and they had Admiral on the back of the tracksuit tops, which was even better for Admiral because they got much more vision exposure. But uh, these are the kind of things on in the 70s, you know, concerns about advertising by the BBC, what they could and couldn't show. Uh, but, but yes, by the end of the 70s, the shirt sponsorship was really starting to take hold for many of the uh, football clubs. On the ball with Brian Moore and football focus oh, as well with Staples, yeah. wasn't they? You couldn't go yeah. to a game yeah. without watching one of the other. We had the big match. We had Star Soccer in the Midlands. What did you have yeah. up there in Sheffield? What was your... It was, York, it, was York, it was Yorkshire TV. And I'm trying to think what the, um, what the title was. It was certainly Keith Macklin to begin with in the early 70s, who was the commentator. And he was well known for being, I think, a songs of praise Um uh, not compare, but the host for Songs of Praise. And actually, for a short while, we had Martin Tyler. Martin okay. Tyler cut his teeth uh, as a broadcaster uh, with Yorkshire Television, commercial television, before obviously going on and making a very successful career with commercial television, more particularly with Sky. We also had the great debate and nearly a punch-up between Revy and Cluffy, didn't we, on oh, Yorkshire? Yeah. What was yeah. it Yorkshire Tonight, was that? Yeah, I think you're right. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And um, there was, to say the least, no, not very good blood between the two of them. And um, Clough only lasted the 44 days at Leeds United. And um, Faye said that uh, to the Leeds United players, you can uh, allegedly, you can throw your medals in the bin uh, that you've won. Um, you've not won them fairly or something like that. So that's not going to get people on side to begin with. But um, that was Clough. That was absolutely 100% true as well. He first day uh, when he met the Leeds team. In fact, that season, then the season before as well, Leeds United used to start a week earlier than anybody else with the pre-season. That's what Don Revie had got them in the 73-74 season um, when they when they won the the title. Don had had a vision that he wanted the team to go unbeaten all season. And that ended at, at Stoke City. But Brian was still on holiday when the Leeds players are already back at training. And Alan Clark says to me, 
Brian Clough was such a nervous man when he first met us at the training wow. ground. Yeah, and he said, get a big dustbin and stick all your in medals because you've <laughs> cheated. And then he went round every player and you, you're a fucking cheat. And you, and he went round the whole lot Jeez. until he come to Eddie Gray and he was very disparaging about Eddie Gray with his injuries. Alan Clark says to me, it was quite funny, but it was absolutely out of order. But that's what Brian was like. But there was also a very nice and kind side to Brian Clough. In fact, Sniffer said to me, Brian Clough was the right man for Leeds United. It was just the wrong timing. Yeah, no, really interesting listening to all that you're saying there. I heard some of the stories, but certainly not all of them. Um, but in that context, it's certainly obviously not how to win friends and influence people and get people on your side when you first go into a football club. But yes, as well, you've said about um, he did have a very generous side to him. And there are some you know, true stories about what he gave to charity and how he supported um, charities and people who were on the street. Um, so there's a very, very clear different side to Brian Clough, which uh, is very strong and very positive. Oh, absolutely. And one of the uh, the journalists that was working closer with Brian, he actually wrote him a cheque to pay off his mortgage. Clough, wow. Clough he was a very, wow. very generous man. He just didn't take fools lightly. He also used to water the pitches a lot. And I think he got that oh, from Waddington yeah. when he used to water the Victoria pitch for Matthews when he brought him back. Uh, yes, I, I think I've got something in the book about, uh, about that. And um, the groundsman. He yeah. instructed the, as you've said, he yeah. instructed the groundsman will water the uh, the baseball ground. It'll be very heavy, actually, because we play on it so much. We'll be the best at playing on this pitch compared to any of the any of the opposition, the away teams that come. So, and that I think upset may well have upset lots of teams, but particularly upset Juventus when they came across for a European Cup game in the, the mid seventies. Um, so, a man of many facets. And we have to talk about Bill Shankly because arguably one of the greatest managers of the 70s, Bill Shankly, who who retired, who retired, was pretty much, at the, was it the end of the Charity Shield game? He, he led out yeah. Liverpool, didn't he, with Cloughy, with yeah. Leeds, and then not long after that, he well, I've had enough, I'm retiring, and the Vox Pops of the of the Liverpool supporters, who are you having a laugh, ain't you laugh? He ain't retired, Shankly's still with it. No, Shankly's gone. No, you're joking. Bill Shankly's still Liverpool manager. I mean, that was one of the most mad times of the 70s i remember that as a kid really well because shankly again was another one of my idols yeah no doubt and then shankly dominated um uh he would have been the first high profile media friendly manager i think yeah. um but, but I, I actually think he announced his retirement at the end of the 73 four season because i remember being around at the mate's house a couple of us and uh, it was on the radio that bill shankly is retired and no one could believe it. He'd yeah. um, he'd gone and he'd just won the league, and and he was in his pomp. Yeah. Um, you're right. He did lead them out in the charity shield. I think that's something they wanted him to do. And they've still people have tried to get to the bottom of why did he retire. I'm not sure that anybody actually has. I did read that um, Bob Paisley observed that um, he thought it was because Shankly had built another great Liverpool team. And he was concerned he couldn't build another one and that he wouldn't be quite as good as he might be. Whether that's fact or not, I don't know. But he was a great manager and, and was the guy responsible for putting Liverpool on the map and laying the foundations for the great football club that they, that they are. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, Liverpool, when they won the league title in 46-47, when Stoke City handed them, because Stan, Stan Matthews had gone, uh, he'd left Stoke and he'd, he'd gone up there to Blackpool. And as a consequence, then Stoke capitulated and uh, and Liverpool won the league. But until Shankly walked into to Anfield in 1959, uh, Liverpool, really. I mean, they were a second division team. Liverpool, yeah, yeah, Shankly yeah. laid the foundations. Shankly, the boot room was already waiting. The, the boot room was there. It was just waiting for somebody to breathe life into it and add that magic dust. And that's what Bill Shankly did to Liverpool FC. Absolutely. And um, they were very much in the shadow of Everton until he arrived, I think, yeah. over, over the history of it. But one thing you 
remind me, I, I worked at uh, the end of the 70s at Ford, and um, there's a guy who I knew very well there called Steve Keeling, and I think I put this in the book, but I remember him saying to me, you know, we, we went up to Melwood um, to see Liverpool train. Him and a mate went up to Melwood to see a Liverpool train, which was from London. He went up there. They got there. Shankly said to them, what are you lads doing? Uh, we've come to um, watch you train, watch the team train. And he said, OK, fine. Uh, Bob, I want you to take training today, Bob, Bob Paisley. I'm talking to these lads. And he'd spent an hour and a half talking to them. They were just blown over. But that was the nature of the guy. Yeah. He just loved football. He loved football supporters. And he, he gave his time to people who were genuinely interested in football and were passionate about his Liverpool Football Club. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the kids would play football and, and you know, jumpers down for goalposts where Shanks used to live, they'd knock on his door and say, do you want to come play football? Shanks would be out there <laughs> playing football with them as well. You know, just incredible. Talking about Ford yeah. and cars, we also had players, or certainly a player, that used to jump over him in the 70s as well. And he was a decent player as well, young Duncan McKenzie. Oh, my word, yes. Yes, he'd come into the um, showman, Maverick, um, a great player, great player. Again, a sh- someone who would bring the crowds in. Superstars as well was on our TV yeah. sets. What yeah, a yeah. programme. Football yeah. players ordinarily didn't do that good on superstars. However, Malcolm McDonald did and Kevin Keegan did. Stan Bowles, I think it was because Don Shanks had put him up to it, that Stanley entered the four at superstars. And to say that he was absolutely awful is an understatement. In fact, I think he nearly shot himself in the foot when he was like doing the like with the guns. Stan had never seen a gun before. Well, he, he probably had with the Quality Street Gang up there in Manchester, but not one like that to shoot at targets. Oh, <laughs> and we had some great rock bands as well, didn't we? And music of the seventies was fantastic mm. as well. Yes, again, it defined a decade, didn't it? And yeah, it did. Very much so. Uh, yeah, the whole the whole thing came together. Um, fabulous times. But the music was as diverse as the football because there wasn't one set genre. It was like teams that could win the league. There was there was a number of them. You put your money on Liverpool one year, but but it could be one of ten. So. When you go to the bookies, you wouldn't really know who to put your dough on. And famously in the 1975-76 season, when the season finished, had you have put that money on Liverpool, QPR were top of the league. Yes. They won the league, didn't they, on the last game of the season? No, QPR didn't. QPR came second. No, they did, yeah. But on that last game of the season, they actually were top of the league. They'd won it. But Liverpool had got that game in hand after and, and, uh, and won and then took the league championship. You're dead right. Absolutely right. Yes, yes. There's that iconic um, moment, isn't there, with the QPR players watching Liverpool's game. Yeah. I think they play, again, yeah. I think they played Wolverhampton Wanderers through memory. I can't remember that yeah. level of detail, I'm afraid, but you're, you're absolutely right that QPR were top on that last, the last day of the season. And what a team Queen's Park Rangers were as well. They yeah. had everything, didn't yeah. they? Yes, uh, brilliant team, brilliant players. Jerry Francis, um, Stan Bowles, of course, and Dave Thomas, I think, was playing for them. Yeah. Uh, real quality side. And, um, bit, bit unfortunate not to win the league that season, by all accounts, but um, yeah, top side. I think QPR played some of the greatest football of, uh, of the 1975-76 season. And I think it was that season that they started off by beating Liverpool when Jerry Francis scored that goal, didn't he, that was ultimately goal of the season. Your memory is fantastic. <laughs> just watching no match of right. the day and, and just <laughs> loving football. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, Richard, it's been a fantastic trip down memory lane and of course we had the football magazines as well we had shoot we had goal we had the annuals i remember buying my first shoot annual in 1972 and i've still got it to this day oh brilliant absolutely brilliant yes and i think um uh, i think football uh, i was gonna say football monthly was was still out uh, i've got the wrong title there um 
because they had Jimmy Hill's Football Weekly, which I think finished in the early 70s. Okay. Um, but, but the annuals, you're absolutely right, they can. And I got those as well. They're real quality, real interesting. And um, yeah, again, started off a separate genre coming through. For the, and the, for fo- the decades to follow. Yeah, and the football sticker books as well. We had the football oh, sticker yeah. books. Yeah, yeah. Panini's first World Cup uh, album was the 1970 World Cup. And look how they've grown, not just for the World Cup, of yeah. course, but look how they've grown since the 70s. So a whole heap of um, stuff around football and part of football, the very fabric of football, uh, started to come through in the 1970s and, and, and make it the game that we know and love. And then ESO coins that we used to collect ah, as kids as well, yes. weren't they brilliant? And yes. the centenary yes. FA Cup final that Leeds United yes. won, which was my first FA Cup final in colour that Alan scored the winning goal. A wonderful diving header. And Sniffer, in his own words, says, I was going to volley it, but when I seen the ball come in, it was dropping, so I just dived there, did it? And it went in the back of the net. Brilliant. Wonderful, wonderful. Was that was that the one where Mick Jones had his yeah, arm was, in a yeah. sling? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Fantastic memories. What are you working on at the moment, Richard? What's next um, for you? What's I, on the horizon? I, I just just started uh, on the 1990s. Ooh. I've done the, 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 the 60s. We talked about the 70s. 80s came out a few months ago. So I've just started working on the 1990s. And um, real interesting stuff because there's a, there's a load of things that happened in the 90s. Um, which I, I, I enjoy writing. That's the other. I just enjoy the um, sitting down, unloading from my own memory. And that's the way I try to write, unloading from my own memory to begin with. What are the things that I remember? Put them down on paper. Now, how important were they? Are they going to be helpful supplementing things I put in the book? So, yeah, looking forward to, um, to developing that and um, hopefully having that published in a year or two's time. Will it be published by pitch because this book is published by pitch were your other books published by pitch and they do publish some wonderful football books and uh, also got to give a mention out to myfootballbooks.com that do a wonderful job promoting some of the fantastic titles that I buy I don't read them all I don't have time to read them all but I do read bits of them and I absolutely I love books my missus would say you're going to buy another book that you're not going to read I said I'll read it one of the days (laughs) yeah um uh, the first book was published by DB Publishing, but every other book has been published by Pitch. And thankfully, and I appreciate Pitch are going to publish the one nineties. And I couldn't agree more. I think they're a fabulous uh, publisher. They give um, writers the opportunity to put different subjects forward. And if they think the idea is a good one, they'll support it. They'll market it. They'll put everything behind it. And I'd like to, yes, um, make the comment about Pitch, but also, as you have said, uh, for my books as well, I think they're a fabulous uh, organisation and they promote and put forward um, good books and a wide range of books, a breadth of books that you can just get into, get an understanding of. And if you want want to try one, it's, it's great. And um, I think that's another thing that's come through more recent times, the quality of the football books, the breadth yeah. of the subjects that are covered, are just fabulous. That's what I love. And the podcasts as well. I'm always <laughs> listening to people's podcasts or the people's podcasts. You yeah. learn so much by talking to people, by listening to people, by reading their books. And uh, I've been educated as well by Alan Hudson, by Tony Curry, by Terry Curran and lots of the former players that, that I've interviewed over the last few years. And uh, there's just so many wonderful things that have gone on that are going on and i'm looking forward to speaking to you again when the 90s book is finished because uh iconic decade as well because it was the uh start of sky tv wasn't it whole new oh, ball absolutely. game yeah sky tv the whole thing on uh television like live league games the whole bosman transfer and so on and so forth. I just momentarily go back. I think what you do um, in terms of the podcast and the players you talk to and that we can listen to as a result of all the fine work and, and excellent hard work that you put in, is just fantastic to be able to listen to these people talk, the people who idols 
for us in the in the sixties and seventies, you had Jim McCallioch. Um, you were talking to him, and he was my boyhood hero at Sheffield Wednesday, and he'd left Wednesday in '69. But some of the stories that came through, you were talking to him. It just wow, just um, yeah. And I use the word wow because um, he he's a hero. And the other guys you've talked about, they were they were heroes too. And and you bring that across, and they're accessible, and they're, they're human beings, and there's fabulous stories, absolutely fantastic. And thank you for your kind comments tonight and also uh, being able to do this podcast with you. I've absolutely enjoyed it thoroughly. Lovely. The feeling is absolutely reciprocated. It's been uh, wonderful. And you're right, Jim McCallyog, a legend wherever he's been. He had a few clubs. He played a lot in the Midlands as well for uh, for Wolverhampton Wanderers yep. and played in... Um, Big, big historic games, cup finals, cup semi-finals in uh, in Europe as well. Um, and has got a book coming out this year, Jim has, and Terry Curran's favourite Sheffield Wednesday player as well. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I shall look forward to reading both of their books, that's for certain. Absolutely. Well, till next time, Richard, can I thank you very much and thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a ball. Thank you very much as well. Thank you. Thanks, pal. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Fantastic. Lovely. Lovely. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Bye, Bye. Richard. Bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.